Joe says he really had no choice, even though he made a decision that most of us would be horrified to make ourselves. Here's what happened. He was in prison. He'd served eight years on a robbery conviction. And he got accused of killing another prisoner, which in many states can get you the death penalty. He was innocent. This was later proven definitively. But his lawyer wasn't very good. When I first met him, I asked him about, you know, have you ever represented anyone before in a capital murder? And he told me, I'm going to be honest with you, so I've represented seven people so far. He said six of them got the death penalty, and one get received life in 50 years without the possibility of parole. The actual details of Joe's trial are not my concern here today. The fact that a guard witnessed the crime and named the real killer on the stand, but was ignored. The fact that all the witnesses against Joe were prisoners whose testimony radically contradicted each other's. All you need to know is that justice wasn't done. The jury found him guilty, which brought Joe to make a decision that he never told his lawyer about. When it came time for sentencing, which was the next thing that would happen in this case, the penalty phase, where they had to determine the sentence now that he's been found guilty, the jury was going to have to rule if Joe would get the death penalty or get life in prison. Them was my two choices, and I went back to the prison and telling myself that I only had one option, and the only option I had was to make sure I received the death sentence. And I had, I came to the conclusion that night, just between me and the guys that was in the in the in the in the uh, what they call the unit with me, we all talked about it, and they all came and said the same thing. I said was there was too many guys in prison who had life in fifty years without parole or life without parole who might be innocent or whatever, but they stuck in prison because they don't have a lawyer and they can't get no atten- nobody's attention. So I figured, you know, if, if I end up getting life in prison without the possibility of parole, I'm stuck. Any legal work that be did on my case, I'll have to do it myself, you know, or any publicity I'm going to get, where I'm going to get it from, I'm, I don't have a death sentence. Mm-hmm. So what, a guy got life in 50 years about them every day. You know? mm-hmm. So when, when the penalty phase came, and he put me on that witness stand. I already made my mind up that I'm going to think of every bad act I've ever done as far as back as I can remember. Every bad act, my sisters and brothers, my father, my mother, my neighbors, everything bad I could think to tell them, everything bad I could think of to tell them I did while I was in prison, I told it. You know, because I wanted to make sure I received the death sentence because I figured, you know, if I received the death sentence, I'll have a lawyer. And I might be able to get some publicity, and I might be able to overturn this wrongly convicted, this conviction I have. And if you read my penalty phrase transcript, you'll see in there that I went out my way of making sure I received that death sentence. I actually have a transcript of your testimony right here. And it's really amazing what you, what you say when you're on the stand. Like you, you say that you're not against the death penalty. You say, um, here we go, I'm just going to quote directly. You say, I'm not speaking to keep from getting the death penalty. I still have certain beliefs. I still believe that I should be held accounted for whatever I do. If I rob, I'm not necessarily ashamed of it. And if I get caught, I'm not mad because I get some time, because I knew what I was doing. You know, I'm sitting up here being tried for capital murder, which I was found to be convicted of, which means that it was proven I did it, I guess. But I'm still sitting up here saying that I agree that if I'm found guilty for a crime, that I'm supposed to be punished for it. And I believe, you know, in this society, I believe that I've been judged by my peers, and I believe all that. And I know right from wrong. You know, I know all this. You see, I was trying to get that death sentence. <laughs> I wanted that. I mean, you know, it, everything I could think about that probably would hurt me, mm-hmm. I said it. I said it. 
Here, here, here's the part in the transcript. I'm just looking through. Hold on. Where you say, um, this is a, just a, a really amazing thing to say to a jury. You say, well, as far as me being convicted of capital murder, I don't hold no hard feelings toward the jury at all. Let me say this here. As long as they took the evidence and felt me guilty in their own minds as the evidence was presented to them, I don't hold no hard feelings towards them. I'm not against the death penalty. How much of a risk did you think you were taking? What was the risk? There was no risk involved. Well, how much of a risk, how much of a chance did you think you had that you might get executed? Uh, I probably had probably a 99.9% chance of being executed just so I had like a 99.9% chance of spending the rest of my life in prison. So Joe gets what he wants. They sentence him to death. And then his gamble begins. He's on death row five years, 10 years, 15 years. Watch his friends there sent to die. And how close did he get to dying? Oh, man, don't even ask me that one. You know, I got denied in the district court. Then I got denied in the Eighth Circuit. But once you get denied by the United States Supreme Court, you have no more appeals. There's nobody else to appeal that to, you know. And I had got denied by them. Uh, the same day I was informed I was denied, my lawyer told me then that the Attorney General's office has already uh, petitioned the Missouri Supreme Court to set me an execution date. And so you felt... I, I felt like I was history. Yeah, I was history. No doubt in my mind, I knew I was history. Everybody else knew I was history. Actually, there was an article here in the in the, in the Pitch Weekly in Kansas City that said, "So long, Joe." <laughs> well, that's what you want to say. That was that was the cover <laughs> of the article. So long, Joe. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. And at that point, did you think like oh, maybe I made a mistake choosing the death penalty? Um, I, I probably went through my mind probably a thousand one times, but I guess the bottom line, probably I came back right back to the same conclusion. I, it's, it's dead. I can't undo it. I, don't get me wrong. There was many times where I, you know, I wanted to just give up, lay in the middle of the floor and just say, I give, you know, come and kill me, you know. In the end, his plan worked just like he thought it would. A lawyer from a nonprofit group that does wrongful conviction cases took him on. He got some press. There was actually a documentary film about him. And the Missouri Supreme Court took another look at the evidence in the case and freed him from prison in 2003, after 17 years. All because he went for the death penalty in the first place, he says. So, so if you hadn't taken this risk during that trial, do, do you think you'd be free right now? No. No. You'd still be in there. Yeah, with life in prison, without the possibility of parole. I mean, yeah. where would I where would I have been able to gain some relief at? I mean, I come from a very poor family. Um, I didn't really know nothing about the law. Um, uh, who was going to come and represent me free? That was the that was the only route I could go. I had no choice. Well, today on our program, we bring you three stories of people who got backed into a corner, and who like Joanne Ryan, made very counterintuitive choices. Choices most of us would never make. Sometimes, as you'll hear, it works out great. Sometimes it works out not so great. From WBEZ Chicago, it's This American Life, distributed by Public Radio International. I'm Ira Glass. Act 1 of our program today takes place in a nearly bankrupt sub shop in Seattle, a place where desperate action was necessary. Act 2, in a truck moving across the entire United States, a truck suffering from what would seem like a nearly unworkable problem. Act 3, unfolds in an interrogation room at a top-secret government agency. Stay with us. Hack 1. 
working class hero sandwich. Donna Lentz was 25, working at a Mexican restaurant for $8.60 an hour, which wasn't enough to pay her share of the rent and save for school and keep her 1986 Honda from falling apart. So when she noticed a Quiznos franchise opening up across the parking lot from her job, she filled out an application. It was supposed to be an easy second income. Making sandwiches part-time seemed simple enough. But she ended up backed into this corner where she had to make the kind of decision you or I would probably never make. Charlene Holt tells what happened. The first hint that this store might run into problems was the job interview, or in Donna's case, the lack of one. I went in, and he handed me a handbook, and he goes, okay, I'll call you when we open the restaurant. I was like, okay, that was the easiest interview I've ever been on. (laughs) The restaurant was owned by three immigrants from India. One was a likable but nervous man named Navi. He was supposed to manage the place, but he'd never run a restaurant before. The others were a husband and wife team who were supposed to be silent partners. To Donna, Navi seemed to be doing well at first, but the partners didn't think so. They would call him and say that he was spending too much money on food and not enough money was coming in, just nitpicking about things. We would get wonderful scores on our evaluations when the corporate would come in, and they would pick him apart on them. He he didn't smoke for like five or six years. He stopped smoking. And then once he started at the restaurant and they started giving him a hard time, he was smoking. He was throwing up before he, he was working. He couldn't come into the store without getting sick. He just was done with it. One Sunday night, about a month after the store opened, Navi pulled Donna aside. And he was like, Donna, I can't. I can't do this anymore. They're making my life hard. I miss my family. I want to go home to my wife. And it's not worth it. I'll give up all my money that I put into this. I'm just going to go. And I was like, you can't go yet. You're leaving me here. I haven't been trained to do anything in this store or for this company. I don't know what they want. And he's like, I can't do it anymore. So he says, I'm I'm sorry. I'm, I'm leaving. I quit. So that's when things started going bad. Donna called the other owners and told them what happened, and they took over, which only made things worse. The wife came in and started pushing the employees around and saying they're not doing things right and we need to do things like this. And she hung out for mm, probably about an hour, if that, every day for a month. And then she was gone. I called her and I was like, what am I supposed to do with this store? Are you guys coming in or where are you leaving me? And their exact words were, Donna, we're giving this store to you. Take care of it. And I'm like, I don't know how. (laughs) Donna still doesn't know why the owners abandoned the store. Maybe they were too busy with their other businesses. Maybe they had money problems. Whatever the reason, suddenly she and her crew were alone. By now, Donna was working there full-time. It was her only job. She called Quiznos Regional Office every day, sometimes more. They told her there was nothing they could do. They didn't own the business. The franchisor did. But Donna and the other employees stayed, figuring help would come. Her first duty as unofficial manager was to order food. So I started talking to these distributors and stuff. And I'd call them, and I'm like, I've never done this before. Help. (laughs) 
<laughs> and people are like, oh, don't worry, it's okay. We'll work with you. <laughs> this is how Donna learned how to run the business. She asked questions, she improvised, and things were okay at first. Food was coming in, the payroll service was sending checks. Every day she'd deposit more money in the store's bank account than she was spending. But what Donna didn't know was that the account was being bled dry by automatic withdrawals. Quiznos Corporate was taking its cut, then the lenders, then even small things like the laundry service. It took about not even a full month for us to start going really rapidly downhill. Things started bouncing through checking accounts, so food wasn't coming in, and they started making it pay on delivery. And then we started getting, if you don't pay, we'll turn it off notices or we'll stop serving you notices. And also we got stuck with checks not being paid, bouncing checks. Our payday was on December 24th, Christmas Eve. Everybody wants to go Christmas shopping. So I gave them their checks. And they all went over to the bank and tried to cash their checks. And all the bank tellers laughed at them because there's no money in the account. <laughs> and so that's when we have to start taking money out of the drawer. She paid employees out of the drawer. She paid suppliers out of the drawer. She paid the rent out of the drawer. That got very, very thin pickings there. <laughs> My deposit turned into like $200 a night. And so probably after money started running dry, I was probably earning maybe a dollar a day. And so that's when the employees started getting paid maybe every other night or every three nights. And that's when I lost majority of my employees. Still, Donna didn't quit. Not because she felt so loyal to Quiznos, and not because she loved the challenge. She stayed because the economy's tough, and she was worried she might not find another job. Even a job that paid a dollar a day was better than no job at all. Also, I, I thought there was hope somewhere. Maybe this is just a phase. <laughs> but I didn't think it would ever get to the point that it did. I visited the restaurant when things were at their worst, and it was like walking into a store in Russia after the ruble collapsed. Nothing on the shelves, hardly any customers. So quiet you could hear the appliances humming. It's weird to be in a fast food place with the clean floors and the brightly colored tables and everything in its place, except the food. There were little handwritten signs all over the store, each nozzle on the soda dispenser had its own out-of-order note taped to it, except for vanilla Coke. People hate vanilla Coke. One customer, a tall professional woman, looked at the soda machine, laughed, and asked for a large out-of-order. With ice or without, Donna deadpanned. We started writing signs to warn them beforehand. Okay, they were out of this, 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 because how do you explain to somebody, I don't have any bread even though I'm a sub shop kind of like, I'm sorry, I don't have any bread. <laughs> I don't even know where to start from that. At the prep table, they only had that processed lunch meat turkey you get at the grocery store, some roast beef, but none of the normal Quiznos sauces. No honey bourbon mustard, no zesty grill sauce, no creamy bacon alfredo, no raspberry chipotle. In the back room, it was just as bad. This is going to be cold. <laughs> 
this is our freezer. There was one box, and that was Philly cheesesteak. And that was it. I had no cookies, no soups, no nothing. Um, right here is where soups are. When we were out of stuff, we didn't have soup, so there was nothing there. There was no pots, no pans, no dishes, nothing. It was just empty. <laughs> right over here is where we would, like, prep, and it, it was usually empty because there was nothing to prep. Donna made a spreadsheet on her home computer. Every night, she'd subtract the day's cost from sales. The numbers always came up negative. It frustrated her, kept her up at night. Every morning, with money from the till... Donna bought lunch meat at Cash and Carry. Then she'd drive to other Quiznos stores around Seattle for the special bread. She bought a few bags at a time, rationing the supplies so the night crew would have enough for their shift. Not that the customers appreciated it. At first, people would just walk out. And then it got to the point where people are like, why are you even open? Why do you stay here? And then after the first couple times of people getting irritated... I put up another sign telling them not to be mad at us. It's not our fault. This is what the sign said. Due to bad owners, we are out of a lot of things. Please do not be mad at the employees or manager. We're really sorry, and please be patient. <laughs> the day that we didn't have, I think, chicken or something, customer came down and was like, you know what, you're good for nothing, incompetent. What's the purpose of you even being here? And I just looked at him and I was so shocked for words I had nothing to say to him. And it, it hurt me. It hit me really hard. Why? Because I was trying so hard and that people couldn't see that I was trying so hard. I mean, my employees saw it. But the, the customers are like, just blowing it off like this was an everyday thing. And it wasn't. So what sort of person comes to a sandwich shop that doesn't have any food? When I visited the store back then, I saw a lot of first-time customers, plus other people who worked in the strip mall who were curious to see how bad things were getting. Then there were customers like Tim, a local delivery man. For him, habit and convenience were apparently more important than quality, variety, and freedom of choice. I walk in the door and whatever's left she made me to eat. I still showed up. I was here every day. And then every day it was one thing short of another out of bread, and then it was out of meat, and then it was one thing or another. Yeah, I was wondering if I was going to get a napkin with some lettuce on it, so I wasn't for sure. Donna kept calling the Quiznos people. One Sunday, she told them she'd run out of bread. Again, they told her they couldn't step in. Bread or no bread, she had to keep the store open. Then the media got a hold of the story, and suddenly, everything changed. Quiznos headquarters sent in reinforcements, brought in food, paid the workers back wages. I ain't never seen more people here in my life. Again, Tim, the customer and delivery man. They were so overstaffed, it was unbelievable. They had people just standing around just to ask you, hey, how you doing? And, and they were blowing smoke, telling about, oh, as soon as we heard, we rushed right on down here and took care of it. And I'd lose my job if I took that long to get a package to somebody. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> 
I tried to speak with one of the Quiznos people Donna dealt with, but was redirected to a spokesperson, Stacy Lang, Quiznos Vice President of Public Relations. Unfortunately, we had a glitch in our system where the regionalized people did not communicate the information back to corporate about what was going on. Otherwise, we would have stepped in a lot sooner with support. The best we can ascertain of why it didn't communicate back to corporate is that the regional folks were aware that we had a new franchise owner in the system who was supposedly only weeks away from assuming responsibility of the store. Mm-hmm. And they recognized that Don and the team had things going very well at the store from their perspective. Very well. Is that how they put it? Well, in their case, they were, they were keeping things operating uh, by their standards, clearly not by corporate standards. Stacy explained that after all this happened, Quiznos flew Donna to its headquarters in Denver. She got to meet the company president, and she went through formal management training. Did she get a, a raise to manager's salary? Absolutely. Her What had happened is there's a bump in pay, hourly pay, for a manager position versus a, a, a line employee. So she was able to reap the benefits of that. The benefit was a $1 raise to eight sixty an hour, the same that Donna was making at the Mexican restaurant five months earlier. She wasn't paid overtime for the 12-hour day she worked. She wasn't compensated for the customer abuse or the pressure from vendors who wanted their money. But in a weird way, those struggles brought their own kind of reward. After years of minimum wage jobs, getting ordered around by all sorts of people, it's useful to learn that the bosses and owners don't know anything you couldn't figure out on your own. Donna had stopped thinking of herself as a line worker, and she'd started thinking of herself as a manager. I didn't need anybody else. I needed money, (laughs) but who doesn't? (laughs) But I didn't need anybody else. I was on the major test of my whole life, and taking on something like that was a big responsibility, and it was dropped on me, and I do understand that, but I chose to stick it in there, and so, therefore, I chose that responsibility, and, you know, I feel it was a good on an application, voluntary work for a sub shop. Where else could you get something like that? (laughs) Eventually, the publicity died down, and when it did, the corporate people left. And again, Donna and the others were on their own, still paying themselves out of the till, still coming up short. For a while, it looked like the company had found a buyer. Then the deal fell through. Donna thought about buying the place herself. She even talked to people at the bank. But she didn't earn enough to qualify for the loan. So six months after it opened, the Quiznos shop on Holman Road, my store, as Donna used to call it, shut down. Donna took a manager and training job at Radio Shack, making $8 an hour plus commission. She's still waiting for her last paycheck from Quiznos. Sherlene Holt is a business reporter at the Seattle Times. To destroy the earth, we'll have to go through you first. Bet they won't be expecting that when they finally come to destroy the earth, they'll have to deal with you first. And now my money says they won't know about the thousand fair and high, I've met all lights behind you. 
back into a corner on thousands of miles of interstate highway. That's in a minute from Chicago Public Radio and Public Radio International when our program continues. American Life, America Glass. Each week on our program, of course, we choose a theme, bring you a variety of different kinds of stories on that theme. Today's program, Backed into a Corner, stories of people who are forced into making decisions they really do not want to make. We arrived at Act 2 of our program. Act 2, Don't Drive Like My Brother. I like our story in um, Act 1, this is a story about somebody who just needed a job, and that is what put him into the position where he ended up doing things that most of us would probably avoid. Charles Johnson had a wife and a daughter, and he was out of work, and he looked around, and he was so desperate that he ended up in a job where he lacked one crucial qualification, a critical qualification, you'd think. And yet, somehow, he made it work for years. Jonathan Mehivar explains. Charles Johnson was a trucker, a long-haul trucker who went everywhere, and he did it without knowing how to read. Couldn't read highway signs, couldn't read a map. It got him into all sorts of trouble like when he was hauling stuff to New Jersey from New York and had no idea how to decipher the signs on the George Washington Bridge. Hundreds of feet in the air, 12 lanes of traffic, and he's hauling 80,000 pounds, enough weight that you never forget it's there. So I got mixed up. So I had to call a truck. Mayday, mayday, I'm up on the bridge, I'm stuck, get me down, you know. (laughs) Get me down, I'm trying to go to Jersey. If I miss it, I got to go all the way back around it. And I always thought of that, I said... I am up here, I can't read. Would anyone believe this? He was just one of those kids who never caught on to reading. He grew up poor in Clarendon, Arkansas, where his family worked as sharecroppers. Charles had asthma, was a sickly kid, and he stayed home from school a lot. And by the third grade, it was pretty clear he wasn't keeping up. As he got older, he was so good at sports, pulling in 30 points a game for the basketball team, They just passed him from grade to grade. By his 30s, he'd moved to St. Louis and got married and did a bunch of different jobs. He washed dishes for a while. For about six months, he ran a gas station his brother owned. But it never seemed like he could support a family on any of those jobs. His brother Paul was making good money as a truck driver, and it seemed to Charles like it was something he could do, too. He found out that this trucking company, J.H. Ware, was training and hiring drivers. So he signed up. The details he didn't understand like the words on the truck's instrument panel, he just ignored. The gauges or whatever they're saying, you really, really didn't pay that much attention. They was just there. You just know that you got to work and make a living. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? You know what I mean? You're not going to let no gauges stop four or $500 coming in your home for a week. 
just know I could do the manual part, how to shift a 21 speed, nine speed, but then we go in the classroom, I would flunk off of everything. I don't know what they're talking about, how to get this stuff off of paper and put it down. I couldn't do it. What made this even harder is that at the time, no one knew Charles couldn't read. Not his wife, not any of his friends, nobody. So it's not like he could just ask for extra help from a teacher because he'd risk outing himself. Luckily for him, he did have an older brother. A really, really nice older brother. A lady from the personnel office at J.H. Ware called me. This is Paul Kelly, Charles's oldest brother, the one who'd always found jobs for him and helped him out. Paul's also been driving a truck for 30 years. Okay, she says, uh, your brother is trying to get a job with us and asked me if it was any way that I could come and attend the class that he was taking for a week. And she says, I will sure give him a job if you come down and help him. I said, well, I'm working right now. So what I did, I taken a week's vacation off. I got my gear together and I went down to Fulton, Missouri and I spent a week in class with him. The orientation did require some reading. I was sitting right there basically by him and making sure that everything that he checked was correct. And what they would do, like give you a world map and ask you the closest route to a certain place and etc. in the United States, how would you get there? And I had to teach him the straight line is the closest route to any place. Did it seem like he was reading along with you, even if he was slow? Exactly. Once the week of classes was done, Paul took Charles on a trial run down to Atlanta. They drove back through the Carolinas, up over Black Mountain in Tennessee, where Paul taught Charles how to ride the air in his brakes properly so that they wouldn't burn up, how to put it in grandma to slow down. Miraculously, Charles passed the written part of the driving test, which was multiple choice. He used a special technique. I just guess, ain't a mini mighty mole. He got the job. So there he was, license in hand, and really no idea how he was going to pull it off. The job worked like this. The dispatcher gave him what truckers call a bill, which listed the address he was supposed to deliver to and when they expected him. That's it. No directions. No advice at all about how to get there. Sometimes if he had seen the name of the state before, Charles could make it out on the bill. Sometimes he couldn't, but his dispatcher would say enough so that he knew he had to go to Kansas City and that he should head west. And then you go around the truck drivers and you say, I'm going to Kansas City. Anybody going? Then one person said, yeah, come over here. And so I said, man, when are you going to take off? He said, I'm going to take off in about two hours. I said, well, can you wait on me? I'm trying to go with you. He said, well, yeah, I'll wait on you. You'll be my back man. We talk on the radio all the way up. That's how you get there, too. But still, those methods only work some of the time. And that's where his brother Paul came in. So uh, what Charles would do, if he had a problem with his directions, well, he would call me and say, hey, Paul, I'm going to this place. How do I get there? The first time he called me, it was I believe it was the, about the second or third day. I said, hello, uh, Paul. Yeah, and he said, yeah, what's going on? 
Paul, I got a load going to, uh, I want to say Philadelphia. And then he said, you're going to Philly. Well, you take route, boom, boom, boom. You're going to take Interstate 70 to New Stanton. New Stanton, you pick up Interstate 76. And you take 76. You get over to <sighs> Breezewood, Pennsylvania. All right, let's stop that right there. Now, if you're a person who reads, you'd be writing all this down. And Paul always assumed that's what Charles was doing. I want to say he was writing it down because he would repeat it. I, well, let me tell you now, I'm sitting, I'm sitting at home. I don't know. He got there. I had my ABCs down. Charles couldn't read, but he knew his alphabet. He just had to coax someone into spelling the words for him. Then I'd tell him, how do you spell it again? Something like that. And he'd tell me, C-I-T-Y City. I could write that down. He wasn't a worrisome person, you know, that had to get me out to bed, you know, like 24-7, but <laughs> I got up quite a bit. So actually, I was his map by phone. Oh, matter of fact, I had a map out just for him. Yeah, I had a map at home just for Charles <laughs> on my dinner table. <laughs> Paul said Charles would call him three or four times a week, and sometimes as often as ten times a week. But even with Paul's help, Charles had a hard time making sense of the route. He still had to make the place names correspond to what he was seeing on those big green signs over the highway, which he calls boards. He could read numbers, and sometimes he could recognize a word. But it wasn't exactly reading. It was like matching up. Pennsylvania on my, on my paper then it would be on the board there. You're now on a Pennsylvania turnpike, you know, and it would match up. So I knew I was there. First reading it, no. But even when he got to the city or town on his bill, he still wasn't done. Now he had to find out the exact address. On his bill, for instance, it would say 1925 Light Road. But Charles didn't know that, so he'd have to ask somebody. Usually his best bet was to find a cop. I would give it to the police officer, and he would say, oh, Light Road right down there. Then I got Light Road in my head, and I don't forget it. And so I said, go here, and I said, could you write it down for me? So Charles figured out a way to do the job. But the way he was making it work was also making him fail at the job, because he was always late. And when you're late, they take late payments out of your check. And so I called my wife, said, you get the check? She said, yeah, I got it. It was so small. I didn't say, honey, I can't read. Uh, I had to just shut my mouth. It was, uh, it was a nightmare. I couldn't read. I was confused on the road. Wasn't bringing enough money in. The lows was always late. Confusion, confusion, confusion. So what can you do? Did you ever feel like you should just quit? Uh, every day. No matter what, Jonathan, I say I gotta do it. I took the bills, I told the old lady and my daughter that I would be going to New York. And I had to get to New York, man. So he was only driving a truck to keep his family together. But he never made good money at it. And being away from home so much ended up hurting his marriage. Before long, he and his wife split up. 
He quit trucking after he fell asleep at the wheel and drifted into a ditch. His brother Paul was glad he finally quit. He'd worried about him every day he was on the road. And when he looks back on it, he's not sure why he never figured out that Charles couldn't read. And why I felt like that, I don't have a clue. That's strange, isn't it? <laughs> Charles was, I don't know if you spent much time around a person who, who's not that intelligent as far as books goes and reading. Uh, growing up in our environment, there was quite a bit of this around. And it was something that we didn't pay special attention to. So uh, Charles is news, I guess, to you guys' ears. But like I say, I worked around it all my life. And these guys can fake, they can fake you out. I mean, you don't really have a clue that they don't really understand how to read. And he actually, you know, got away with it. I, it frightens me more now than it did then because I didn't know much about it. But now when he told me that he was having such a problem, then it, I, I have feelings for him. So uh, where are we going to go? This is I know the direction. This is south we headed. Charles reads now. So driving is different for him, and so he took me for a drive to show me what that was like. So before, when you would drive down, like, would you be even, would you be able to tell what businesses were? None of them signs. All I did is notice my target from from A to Z. Now, as far as reading the signs, like LaSalle right here, I didn't read that. I didn't read no LaSalle. I just just was a blank. Now, when I travel along the expressway and I'm going down the road, which I've been down there blind. Now I got some eyes, I'm seeing, so I'm reading like Kentucky, 40 miles away. Uh, when you get there, it's like, welcome to Kentucky, you know. I said, I passed this place over and over, and I, did, I just came on in. <laughs> so it's so much different today. It's so much different today. <laughs> oh, boy. We go to make a right turn, but then Charles sees a familiar black and white sign. Now I see one way. That means I can't go there. I would have went in there if, if I, couldn't, I couldn't read. Yeah. yeah. I've been on plenty one ways, you know, and it says one way, and the police come down. I said, I'm so sorry. Uh, I didn't uh, see the signs. How much easier does it make getting around the city? Oh, man, it's, it's, just, it's, just, it's just that you're alive. I, I don't know if it's so much easier. It's just that you are alive. After he quit trucking, Charles went through a really rough period. And then ten years ago, he sort of pulled himself together. He applied for a civil service job, but he failed the entrance exam so badly that it was finally clear to someone that he couldn't read. He was 45 years old. That's how long it took. Instead of a job, they handed him an address for a literacy program. He still goes there all the time. He tells me he's reading this book for a class there. And when he pulls it out of his briefcase, it's not what I expected. What book I'm reading now? I got to do a report on this simple book. Simple book called Dr. Sue. One fish, two fish, red fish, blue fish. If I was to show that to people, 
they will say, wow, I don't know. They will, they will really try to embarrass you. But at home by myself, I'm happy with just reading this. This is better than reading anything at all. Just a simple book. It says one fish, two fish, red fish, blue fish. And then it have the the colors. That's what helps me a whole lot. So I look at the pictures. That, no, the, 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 the fat one has a yellow hat. Charles told me that his whole life he felt like a fake and that that was frightening and exhausting. Now he says he feels liberated. And even just being able to read this little bit or being able to make out his phone bill or follow the instructions on his prescription bottles makes his life so much easier. Like he'd been traveling in a foreign country all this time, and now he's home. Everything's different. Now when he gets lost, he says, he can read his way back. Jonathan Menhivar in Chicago. Act 3, Confessions of a Not Very Dangerous Mind. Sometimes we're backed into a corner by circumstance. Sometimes we're backed into a corner by others conspiring against us. And sometimes we just put ourselves there all on our own. This is um, that kind of story. We have in this story a 22-year-old taking a lie detector test, a polygraph, as part of a job interview for a job that he wants more than anything. And the harder he tries to do well, the worse he does. In the story, um, we call him Matt, though for reasons that have become clear uh, soon enough. Matt is not his real name. His friend Brian Montopoli tells this story, a warning to sensitive listeners that at some point in this story, it mentions the existence of uh, pornography. In high school, Matt wasn't one of those perfect kids who never made a resume-tarnishing wrong move. For one thing, he was a pothead, a big one. And it wasn't just pot he was into. He tried mushrooms, acid, Ritalin, even air fresheners, pretty much anything he could get his hands on. But in his freshman year of college, everything changed. He decided what he wanted to do with his life, intelligence work, and he quit the drugs cold turkey. He studied international security and picked up a language that would help him get a job. I actually, I flipped a coin between Chinese and Arabic, knowing that those two languages were both in high demand for the intelligence community, and uh, uh, came up Chinese. <laughs> yeah, this was before 9-11, so I've been kicking myself ever since. He ended up at one of the best graduate programs in the country for foreign relations, and the hard work paid off. He was offered a job as an intelligence analyst at the National Security Agency. Now all that stood between him and his dream job was a background check and a grueling three-day battery of tests. The first day was an IQ test, the second a psychiatric evaluation, and the third was a polygraph, a lie detector test. The first two days went really well. He felt great. But the night before the polygraph, he started getting anxious. He'd heard horror stories about what it'd be like, and he's an anxious guy to begin with. And he lay in bed that night, worrying about any possible lies that might accidentally blow it for him. Taking the questions apart and putting them back together and overthinking everything. For instance. One of the questions that came up while I was talking to the psychiatrist was, um, you know, have you looked, ever looked at child pornography? And, you know, right away I said no, um, without even thinking about it, because, you know, I've never looked at child pornography. <laughs> and 
And I basically started obsessing about that question, thinking, okay, first of all, full disclosure, I'm gay. Uh, I'm a 21, 22-year-old guy. Like, you know, I have looked at pornography on the internet. Like anyone who's looked at anything on the internet, there is the possibility that, that I've seen something illegal that I thought was legal. Um, but I got nervous because I was thinking, am I now getting myself so stressed out about even the possibility of having accidentally seen child pornography? You know, someone who was 17 and a half instead of, you know, 19, you know? Right. Um, that, that I'm now going to fail the test. The polygraph, you know, it, it doesn't just register lies. It's, it's, a base, it's a test, a measurement of your stress level. He got pretty worked up. And not just about this. But basically, here's the conundrum that, that a person like myself would find themselves going into. And, and I'm sure other people would have less of a problem because they're less neurotic than I am. But you know this test is a measurement of stress. And yet, what is it that even a, a totally innocent average person would be incredibly stressed out about going to this test? Failing the test. So, yeah, I was nervous. And, and to be honest, what I was most worried about going in was the whole drug thing. Right. But their whole thing is if you disclose everything you've done, then you're fine, right? I mean, if you say, yeah, when I was in high school, you know, I smoked a lot of pot, then, then, then that's what you're supposed to do. That's, that's one side of it. I mean, I've heard that, too, that it's sort of like, well, it's not so much what you've done. It's, it's, it's whether you've lied or not. Because what they're really worried about is, you know, blackmail and extortion and, and other countries turning you by, by threatening to reveal your secrets. I mean, on the other hand, you know, if you have murdered three people... And, but you go ahead and tell them in the pre-polygraph interview, it's not like they're going to be like, oh, well, you know, thanks for the candor. When can you start? <laughs> <laughs> when Matt showed up at the NSA building in Maryland for his test, he was taken to a tiny room with a table and two chairs and met his interrogator, an African-American woman in her 40s. She was very nice and seemed to be going out of her way to make him feel more comfortable. The first part of the session was pretty casual. Matt wasn't even hooked up to the machine. The idea was, if he'd ever done anything wrong in his life, this was the time to confess it. You know, and this is sort of like, I guess, the part of the test that people have the sort of running joke, like, you know, make sure you admit that you, like in kindergarten, smashed Little Timmy's beeswax sculpture, you know, like, basically me having the opportunity to expunge every guilty secret I could possibly have. You know, I mean, even at one point... She's like, okay, you know, what crimes have you committed, et cetera? And I was like, well, I'm gay. And she's like, uh... And I was like, you know, that's, that's illegal in some states. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, obviously, like, I mean, I was going out of my way to tell them everything I could. I mean, we spent, right. like, an hour and a half on drugs alone where I was, like, trying to even think of, like, specific dates, which was sort of absurd. I mean, if you smoke pot three times a day for the entire senior year of high school, like, what's the point in giving dates? After a couple hours like this, Matt was finally hooked up to the lie detector. And that's when things started going downhill. The questions, mostly about whether he'd been hiding anything from her in the pre-polygraph interview, were straightforward enough. But Matt could tell from the start that it wasn't going well. There were a lot of problems with how I was, I guess, sitting in the chair or breathing, and she was like stopping, kept stopping the test to give me new instructions. That that actually made me much more anxious because they seemed to be very contradictory. Um, you know, she would tell me that I was like, breathing too hard or something, right? And then, like, three minutes later, she would stop the test again and say, Matt, stop trying to control your breathing. And... Were you and trying to control your breathing? I think I was, because I was trying to make sure I wasn't breathing too hard. <laughs> <laughs> um, so that was, I guess, starting to make me feel like there was a problem. And then finally, she just turned the machine off and said, you're failing. You're failing this test. 
And I said, well, you know, which question? Immediately thinking, ugh, like, the drugs question has totally screwed me over. And she says, well, I'm really, I'm getting a, uh, I'm getting a bad physiological response on every question. And I'm thinking, every question? And I even said to her, I was like, uh, does that include the one about me having ever tried to overthrow the U.S. government? I mean, I'm pretty sure I'd remember it, like, <laughs> um, and she's like, yeah, yeah, every, every question. machine is off at this point and it never got turned back on and i guess the first thing that we started talking about was the drug question because i guess in my mind i just assumed this must really be the problem um and that's when she was sort of portraying herself as like wanting to help me like give up some sort of like sinister secret you know like this test will all be over once you tell me what it is you're keeping you know to yourself but at this point you had nothing to tell her i, I didn't think that i had anything to tell her but again like I think being told that I fail, I'm failing the test and that she, that I have something that I still have to tell her, I'm thinking to myself, my God, I'm so screwed. It could be anything. It could be little Timmy's beeswax sculpture. Like, it could be something that I'm not even, like, it's not even on my conscious level that I can tell her. And I'm thinking to myself as she's, like, going after me more and more, okay, um, obviously, like, she's not going to take no for an answer. I have got to pass this test. I have to get this job. I need to say something to placate her, which I guess was probably the beginning of me really going down that slippery slope of, like, irrationality, where I'm doing something that is, like, really, really stupid, that I'm somehow starting to convince myself, like, is the strategic thing to do at the time. And so, I reached deep inside myself like she wanted me to, and I basically, <laughs> I basically said, oh, you know what, what it might be? Maybe I'm still hung up about the whole child porn thing still. I don't want to say she had like a gotcha look in her face, but she definitely like did the whole like leaning forward and well now I'm very interested in what you have to say. And then and then she's like, well, what do you mean by that? And I'm like, well, maybe I'm still worried that I've seen it unknowingly or unwittingly. Right. And it, maybe it really bothers me, the idea that I've seen someone even who was a little bit underage, like you know, 16 or 17. And her mantra for the next like hour and a half was, Look, things are black or white. You either did it or you didn't do it. Stop telling me you don't know. Did she start sort of getting really aggressive with you at that point? She was getting so aggressive, but by, by, I mean, at one point she like slammed one of her fists into her palm and said, I don't have time for this. We're at war. I mean, wait, we're wait, at wait. war? Wait, wait. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, obviously, like, we've been here for four and a half hours now. Like, how can I take what is obviously becoming, like, the worst-case scenario for this polygraph and, like, come out on top? And apparently my conclusion was to go from saying, well, I just don't know, I don't know what I've done, to saying, okay, I guess I may have looked at some child porn at some point in my life. So you gave her an absolute, yes, I've looked at child porn. Um, yeah, she got me to eventually say, yes, I've looked at child porn. We really started entering like the twilight zone in terms of like how I was rationalizing what I said to her. And at this point is when I really began entirely making things up. <laughs> so she's like, how many images? And I said, in my mind, I'm like, okay, just for my own like sense of like self-esteem, I'm going to give an answer that makes some sort of sense. So I'm going to say some number that I think maybe represents like the highest possible percentage of images that I've seen on the internet that could have possibly been someone who was under 18. And so I say 10. 
And right. she immediately responds with, now listen to me. If it's just one more than 10, if it's 11, then that means you're still lying to me. So you better come up with a number that absolutely includes the maximum number of images that you've seen. And I'm thinking to myself, well, what should I say? Like, 2,000? Um, uh, 12? Like, what What do I say? So I think I came up with 50. <laughs> so you, like, you said to this woman, I have looked at exactly 50 images of child pornography in my lifetime. Um, I think I said I've looked at no more than 50. You know, the, the funny thing about this whole thing is, you know, growing up, I had looked at almost no pornography in my entire life. Like, I had, like, straight friends. I mean, most of my friends were straight guys. Like, you know, you live with them in the dorm. Like, they all were, like, downloading porn off the internet all the time. And I was, try like, feigning interest. And, um, you know, once I came out of the closet, you know, I immediately ended up in a monogamous relationship with someone who I'm still dating today. And I've actually, like... More so than almost anyone else I know my age, I mean, friends of mine, I'm not interested in porn, adult or otherwise. So, for the record, I'm, I'm not an aficionado nor connoisseur of kitty porn. So, I mean, it was totally arbitrary, totally random, and we're joking about it now, but, like, at the time, I'm, like, shaking like a leaf. I, I feel like I'm about to have a nervous breakdown. You know, it's, like, you know, blubbering in my seat, and I was like, oh, you know, um... Could could maybe we just jot it down that I'd like to have a second test, you know? And she's, like, unhooking me, and she's like, yeah, sure, whatever, I'll talk to them. It'll come as no surprise that Matt didn't get the job. Instead, he got a letter from the NSA saying that his application had been discontinued on the basis of his, quote, involvement with child pornography. Getting a rejection letter is one thing, but getting a rejection letter from the United States government saying they know you're into kiddie porn is quite another. Child pornography is a felony. Matt was scared. He hired a lawyer who told him he wasn't alone, that other people taking polygraphs have admitted to all sorts of things they'd never done. The lawyer arranged for Matt to take a new polygraph test, and he passed with flying colors. But the NSA wouldn't change its decision or clear his name, and Matt was haunted by the fact that he'd falsely confessed to an act that repulsed him. It's a pretty awful thing to, be, to know that people out there think that you've done this kind of thing and maybe this sounds weird, but, like, for several months afterwards, like, whenever I'm, like, was, like, standing on, like, a subway platform or something, and there was, like, somebody there with, like, their little kids, like, I felt kind of dirty. Like, I felt like, you know what? There's someone out there who thinks that, like, I want to, like, see pictures of, uh, pictures of these kids naked. Matt was still in grad school when all this happened, and it was hard to drag himself to class every day knowing he was preparing himself for jobs he probably could never have. He gave an intelligence career one last shot and applied for a job at the CIA. But not long after he told them about his NSA interview, they dropped him from the process. I mean, in my mind, without sounding too dramatic, it was basically the end of me working in the career that I wanted to work in. Of course, there's a reason for that. Matt cracked. They asked him some questions, and he implicated himself in a crime he never committed. And maybe that's not the sort of person who should be given our nation's security secrets. Do you think that your performance in the interrogation speaks to how well you would have done your job? No. I Well, I mean, if you want me to be totally honest, if I was going to say, and this could be true, if, if my performance in the interview said anything negative about my, my ability to do the job, maybe it said I was too immature. You know, in the sense that I was the neurotic, 
you know, overly introspective kid who gave up this information in the first place when I didn't need to. But I also think, you know, <laughs> there's something wrong with the system that decides that I committed a felony that I didn't commit and keeps me from ever being able to do the job, but it allows in, you know, Aldrich James, <laughs> who, you know, once they found out that he was a Soviet spy, they got a warrant for his house and they found a statue of Lenin in his backyard. I mean, how come they missed that when they got me? <laughs> He's given up intelligence work for now and moved across the country to begin a new career. I tell you where he went and what he's doing, but he doesn't want me to. These days, Matt would rather say too little than too much and keep some things to himself. Brian Montopoli. Our program is produced today by Sarah Koenig and myself with Alex Bloomberg, Diane Cook, Wendy Dore, Jane Feltis, and Lisa Pollack. Our senior producer is Julie Snyder. Elizabeth Meister runs our website. Production help from Todd Bachman and Kevin Clark. Our website, www.thisamericanlife.org, where you can listen to our shows for absolutely free or buy CDs of them. And you know you can download today's program and our archives at audible.com slash thisamericanlife. This American Life is distributed by Public Radio International. Support for This American Life comes from Volkswagen of America and the Phaeton with four-motion all-wheel drive and adjustable air suspension and 335-horsepower V8 engine, all standard. It's everything Volkswagen knows how to do done all at once. Learn more about the Phaeton at VW.com. WBEZ management oversight for our program by Mr. Tori Malatia, who sat me down at the mixing console in our radio studio years ago and explained to me how he runs the controls the gauges or whatever they're saying, you really, really didn't pay that much attention. They were just there. You just know that you got to work and make a living. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? I'm Ira Glass. Back next week with more stories of this American life. You know what I mean? You're not going to let no gauges stop four or $500 coming in your home for a week. I'm a PRI Public Radio International